It is a rare moment when the preacher of the hour is so caught up in the musical praise that he almost forgets why he came. To the watchmen, to the university singers, my deep thanks for taking me to the throne of God this morning. As one of my seminary friends used to say, if you can't preach after singing like that, you can't preach. I'm going to begin today with several assumptions. And yes, I've heard all of the problems about those who assume things. And yes, I am painfully aware that sometimes, sometimes my assumptions are just plain wrong. But I don't think I would be wrong in assuming that each of you here in this sanctuary this morning or watching on television or YouTube or Facebook is somehow interested in spiritual things. Whether you are that church-attending poster child alumnus who founded a tech company at 34 and has already given Andrews a $1 million endowment, or you left this place years ago unsure that Adventist faith or even organized religion was for you, you have some connection, deep or faint, to the life of the Spirit. The second assumption I'm going to make this morning at an Andrews University alumni weekend is that you have some continuing interest in this place, or even a commitment to this place. This blessed and fruitful acreage on the bluffs where Lemon Creek intersects the St. Joseph River. You may be part of the 50-year class, or you may have washed out of inorganic chemistry in your first 50 minutes. But something in your heart still has fondness for this academic village the unusually rich and diverse and mind-stretching and soul-nourishing community that has been this university for so many decades. You may remember this place as one where everything turned out right for you, the place you found your calling, the place you found your spouse, the place that actually demanded that you think instead of becoming the reflector of other men's thoughts. Or you may look back at your time in this community and ponder what could have been, what causes you should have embraced, what opportunities you let slip away. I'm going to assume today that you have at least some affection for this university. Lastly, I'm going to assume today that you want to be part of some spiritual community. That your soul aches like everyone else who's been created in the image of God for companionship on the journey, encouragement on dark days, and and someone to sing with on those nights when only a song will get you through. I'm going to assume that you are still wanting, maybe even seeking, that spiritual community that you can call home. That home may be within the four walls of a traditional Adventist congregation, or it may gather in a Methodist church basement for an AA meeting. You are seeking a spiritual home. All of those assumptions 
are true for me. And so for the next few moments, I'm going to assume that they may be true for you as well. That's why today I want to talk to you about the church I want to belong to. For a group of Christians who had supposedly experienced the joy and the light of being with Jesus, they were a pretty grim-looking lot. There wasn't a smile in the whole group of them. Now, before you decide that this is destined to be just another sermon criticizing the faithful for not being warm enough or kind enough or sweet enough or hospitable enough, let me say something in their defense. They were all dead, every one of them. And I don't mean spiritually dead or dead in their sins. Every last one of them had been dead for at least 700 years and some of them for twice that. Their opportunities to be radiant, warm, hospitable Christians expired when they expired. It really isn't fair to criticize them today. I was standing in the nave of a beautiful old cathedral in Europe some years ago, and I was listening to a tour guide describe the exquisitely carved images of the saints of the church that lined the upper walls of the cathedral. Saints Matthew and Mark, he told us, were by the hand of a renowned Florentine sculptor. Saint Luke and Saint John on the other side, he said, came from a disciple of Michelangelo. Saint Patrick, Saint Cuthbert, Saint Jerome, Saint Francis, they were all carved in Italian marble, though half those saints came from the British Isles. St. Anne, that was an example of a Venetian school of sculpting. He, he lowered his voice conspiratorially as he alerted us. There was an ongoing debate about whether St. Elizabeth was really a Christian icon at all or whether it was just a statue of a wealthy Roman housewife. On and on it went. St. Sebastian is the one as a pictured as always pierced with arrows for tradition tells us that's how he died. St. Francis always has the birds fluttering around his head. And St. Lawrence, who died a martyr's death on a flaming metal table. St. Lawrence is, I'm not making this up, St. Lawrence is the patron saint of cooks and restaurateurs. As I said, they were a pretty grim-looking lot. Long, drawn, melancholy faces, eyes turned heavenward. These were men and women consumed with the pain of living here below, and not a one of them had their feet on the ground. There they were, the supposed saints of the church, 30 feet up the cathedral walls, halfway between where we live and some suppose the angels live. As the tour guide continued speaking, however, I began to see instead in my imagination a different collection of the saints of the church. It was a collection of the face of believers I have met in more than 40 years of ministry. Elderly women in Guatemala, their hair tied up in bright kerchiefs, kneeling to pray in an outdoor amphitheater before the evening's evangelistic meeting. 
the young businessmen and the young families who poured their sweat and their time into running the committees and ministries of the, of the churches I had the privilege of pastoring. College students who came to my office ostensibly to talk about some theological item, but really, really just wanted to find a place of calm in their turbulent lives. I saw in my mind's eye fellow pastors in Zimbabwe and in the Philippines and in Korea and Britain and here in the United States. I saw them standing in their pulpits after weeping on their knees, pouring out their passion for the word of God and the three angels' messages. And I saw youth. How did she put it? An army of youth rightly trained. I saw them. I have been with them knocking on doors, witnessing on street corners, praying in homes, opening the word to anyone who would listen. All of these faces were rising up in front of me as the tour guide went on and on and on about his dead and marble saints. Just as he was summing up his speech with a grand gesture pointing to the upper walls, these are the saints of the church. I found myself murmuring in my spirit as I saw all of those earnest, praying Adventist faces. No. No. These are the saints of the church. You see, my friends, the communion of saints, the fellowship of saints, isn't some collection of the remarkably holy who get memorialized in marble and whose feet never touch the ground. The communion of saints, the fellowship of saints, are men and women and boys and girls and young adults who struggle with sin and struggle with pain and cry real tears and laugh real laughter. The fellowship of saints isn't some mythical congregation of the super-righteous that gathers somewhere up near the eaves. No. The fellowship of saints is the real church of hurting, tired, trusting, praying men and women who care not a whit for their own righteousness and who gather regularly on their knees. Turn with me to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts as we look at a true fellowship of saints, a real congregation gathered on its knees. You heard Acts chapter 4 and verses 23 to 31 read this morning. If you've been reading the book of Acts recently, and, and I hope you have, then you know that the passage we're going to look at comes at the end of a lengthy story about one of the first episodes of persecution that the Jerusalem church experienced. By way of background, in Acts chapter 2, we have the foundational story of Pentecost. By the supernatural action of the Holy Spirit, the disciples of Jesus were so charged and animated that the history of the world was forever changed. The gift of known, intelligible languages that was the outward expression of the presence of the Holy Spirit, it was given for the purposes of mission not personal edification. Whenever the Holy Spirit descends in the first century 
or in the 21st century, the purpose is always the same. The purpose is always to push mission. The purpose is always to advance mission. The purpose is always to propel mission, to tell the world of the grace of Jesus Christ and of his soon return. Acts chapter 3, we have a delightful story of Peter and John on their way to the temple. And on their way, they are accosted by a lame man outside the temple courts. And just because Peter and John are the servants of a great physician, by stretching out their hands in the name of Jesus, a man who had been lame for decades went leaping and running through the temple courts that day. I would love to have a video of that one. But you know, good news, good news usually isn't good to those who are stuck in the status quo. Have you noticed that? In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were soon arrested and they were hauled before the highest religious tribunal in the land, the Sanhedrin. If you haven't read this account of Peter and John's defense of their behavior recently, Go do it sometime soon, maybe this afternoon. If you enjoy confrontational talk, if you like spirited argument, if you like legal wrangling, this is your story. And if you like those kinds of things, you probably have what it takes to be a church administrator. At the end of it all, the weakness of evil, the foolishness of evil was abundantly clear to everyone, the highest religious authorities in the land, the leaders of hundreds of thousands of people, the men who had authority over every kind of punishment except the death penalty, it says of them that they let Peter and John go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. Wow, there's leadership for you. There's decisiveness for you. So afraid of the people they led that they wouldn't dare to exercise the power they had in their hands. Our text says that when Peter and John were released, they, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, I can never read the record of that great prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4 without a shiver going down my spine. When you set that supercharged, spirit-filled intensity of the infant church over against the smooth-tongued, politically smart schemes of the religious authorities, it's no wonder It's no wonder that in a few years the early church's opponents could legitimately complain they have turned the world upside down. Yes, they did. And they did it on their knees. When we look closely at this remarkable story in God's word, we discover that there were at least four qualities in that Jerusalem church that made it such a vital place to be, a spiritual powerhouse, a genuine spirit-filled fellowship of the saints. To begin with, my friends, it was a provocative church. That's not a word we use very often as Adventists, at least not in an approving way. 
You may be one who thinks that the entire goal of the Christian life is to live as quietly as possible out of sight of the world and hold your breath in your closet until Jesus comes. And if you're one of those, you won't like it that I am calling for a provocative church. You might even come rising up out of your pews ready to throw hymnals at me. But hear me out. Godly people... Spirit-filled people, spiritually charged people are always provocative people as well. There was no way, no way in the aftermath of the stunning good news of Jesus' death and resurrection that the Holy Spirit was going to be represented on earth by a group of tranquilized, mummified, inert believers. These were provocative people. These were men and women so passionately filled with the joy they found in Jesus, so filled with the the fire of the Spirit's kindling, they set off sparks wherever they went. My friends, the mission inspired by the Holy Spirit did not begin with a murmur or a whisper. And the mission inspired by the Holy Spirit will not end with a murmur or a whisper either. These were proclaiming provocative people. They didn't have to try to be provocative. They didn't have to draft manifestos and stage sit-ins and picket corporate headquarters and rally thousands of people on the government plaza. No, they were a lot more like, like Samson's foxes. You remember them? The ones with the burning brands tied between their tails, they ran through the Philistines' dry wheat fields, setting off fires wherever they went. They knew intellectually, they knew experientially the truth of what Jesus had said just a few months before. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. We don't quote him very often on that, but he said it. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. They knew the truth of what that old man Simeon had prophesied in that same temple more than 30 years before. This child, this child, is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Yes, my friends, the saints in this fellowship, the members of this church, were provocative men and women. And that's the kind of church I want to belong to. It follows, of course, that a provocative church will also be a persecuted church. The record of the long struggle for civil rights in many nations of the world, including this nation, during the last 60 years, has given us fresh stories that remind us that provocative people are often persecuted people as well. It wasn't for saying tame things. It wasn't for saying smooth words. It wasn't for endorsing the status quo that Martin Luther King was gunned down by an assassin's bullet and lies in an Atlanta grave today. It wasn't for agreeing to quietly watch the poor of his nation overwhelmed by injustice that Archbishop Oscar Romero was gunned down at the front of his cathedral years ago. 
It wasn't for blending in and minimizing their differences that which all indigenous Adventists in Western Mexico several years ago were marginalized and slandered and opposed so that many of them finally had to leave their ancestral towns and to move to a new place to practice their new faith. They were made to pay a price for keeping the Sabbath, for honoring the commandments of God above the traditions of men. It was because all of these people were committed to a cause bigger than the status quo and bigger than tranquility and bigger than blending in. That's why brave men and women were beaten and they were jailed. They were attacked by dogs. They were shot at by snipers. And some of them were laid in martyrs' graves. And my friends, when the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age once again begins to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit without fear or favor, when it begins to call injustice by its right name, when it refuses to go along and get along just to preserve peace in our time, the church will again become a persecuted church. I've heard one too many prayers. One too many prayers thanking God that the church I know best, the church here in North America, isn't experiencing any persecution. I have heard one too many well-intentioned church elders with golden tones thanking God that no one ever, ever lifts a finger against us. Though it sounds dangerous to say, my friends, I am becoming convinced that the lack of persecution of the church in the Northern Hemisphere is often a testimony against our obedience and a witness against our faithfulness. Evil hasn't vanished from our society, but courageous Christians seem to be vanishing. Evil hasn't gone underground. No. It stares at us from every cinema marquee. It taunts us with the elegant debauchery on which we binge on Netflix. It laughs at us wherever God's little ones go hungry. In Chad, in Bangladesh, in Benton Harbor. Evil hasn't gone underground, but far too often God's people have gone underground. The fact that you and I can regularly worship without upsetting the forces of evil, the fact that we can go about our daily business in easy, accommodating, tolerant coexistence with the forces of evil is pretty impressive evidence that we, we actually fit Jesus' description of that church called Laodicea. Rich, Increased in goods, having need of nothing. Now hear me clearly. I am not calling us to do stupid things. I'm not calling us to deliberately be obnoxious or taunt the evil principalities. I'm not urging we go out and provoke some persecution that will make us feel righteous. If the church will simply be the church that the Holy Spirit has called it to be, if it will be obedient, if it will be consecrated, if it will be witnessing, if it will be evangelizing, it will gather all the persecution it needs to keep its membership committed and its faith pure. The forces of evil are going to see to that. How did the Apostle Paul, excuse me, Apostle Peter put it? Hear him. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. That's the church I want to belong to. Our passage of Scripture also reminds us today that the Fellowship of Saints isn't only a provocative church and a persecuted church, it's also a prayerful church. Some years ago, I was listening to a radio advertisement extolling the excitement and the entertainment that can be found in New York City on Broadway and what some critics still call the Great White Way. And near the end of the ad, this reverent voice came on to say that the moment, the moment on Broadway that most impressed him, that most astonished him, was when the whole cast of 75 actors and actresses came dancing down the stage on their knees. Now, I have thought about that image a good many times. My good Adventist upbringing makes me nervous about dancing of any kind. But I suppose if there's one kind of dancing on which God must smile, it's when his church is dancing on its knees. The members of that spirit-filled Jerusalem church responded to the news of Peter and John's release from prison by joyfully turning their hearts to God. Their invocation of God's power must have echoed the experience of that lame man. Remember what it said of him? He went walking and leaping and praising God. That's exactly what was happening in the prayer meeting we read about in Acts chapter 4. God's people were experiencing the awesome joy of his awesome power. They were reveling in it. Notice how they begin their prayer. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Someone has said you could write an entire volume of theology about just those two words. Sovereign Lord. When the fellowship of saints begins praying, when God's church begins praying, they aren't addressing a Lord who controls, you know, most of the universe or a majority of shares in the heavenly office or 51% of the voting stock or 75% of the military hardware. He is sovereign. He rules over all. And everything that looks like a challenge to his rule, every flare-up of evil, will end ultimately in futility. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just to make that point crystal clear in the hearing of God, the members of that church described the futility of evil. Even that supreme act of rebellion by which Herod and Pilate and the religious authorities conspired to put Jesus to death, even that audacious act was frustrated when Jesus rose up triumphantly from the grave on Sunday morning. The most audacious challenge to God's authority and rulership ever staged by the forces of evil. It ended with the victory of Jesus as they all will. So now, Lord, they continue. Look at their threats. 
Just look at them, Lord. We're not asking you to silence them. No. We're not asking you to muzzle them. No. We're not asking you to defeat them. No. We're not asking you to destroy them. No, no. We're just asking you to notice them, Lord. See that they have lifted up their hands against your holy servant, Jesus. Notice, Lord, they have dared to touch the apple of your eye. Notice as well, Lord, they have dared to stand against your church. Notice that they have dared to oppose that one institution on earth on which you still lavish your supreme regard. Notice, Lord, they have lifted up their hands against this fellowship of saints for which your Son, our Savior, gave up his lifeblood. All we need, Lord, is that you notice them. All we need is we know that your eye is on them, for you will deal with them in your own good way and your own good time. I wish I, wish I could communicate with you today the certainty that comes from praying like that. I wish I could convey to you today how certain I am in my heart that God is even now noticing the threatenings of the evil one. I wish I could somehow share with you how deep my conviction is. Though God's remnant church will yet experience a time of division and distress and threatenings and confusion, we have not ceased to be the apple of his eye. What was it the hymn writer said? Though with a scornful wonder... Men see her sore oppressed. Though foes would rend asunder the rock where she doth rest, yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon, soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. The fellowship of saints asks God for one more thing. Listen to them. Grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hands to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They might have prayed for protection, but they didn't. They might have prayed for insight, but they didn't. They could have prayed for unity. They didn't. They didn't ask for justice. They only prayed for Holy Spirit boldness. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would protect them as much as they needed. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would give them as much insight as they could handle. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would provide as much unity as they could act on and as much justice as they could perform. The real danger in that moment, the danger was that they would lose their confidence in God's power, that they'd get intimidated by evil men and swords and spears and prisons. Prayer... Prayer gives certainty, my friends. Prayer gives confidence. Prayer helps us to believe and to act on the impulses of the Holy Spirit. Prayer puts the reality to us that John Bunyan put in the mouth of that character he called evangelist. I have written these words on the walls of my life. Let the kingdom be always before you. Let the kingdom be always before you and firmly believe in things thought impossible. That's the church I want to belong to. The provocative church is a persecuted church, is a prayerful church. I should hardly have to say it's also a powerful church as well. What does it say at the end of this passage? When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered 
was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And get this. They spoke the word of God with all boldness. God was so delighted with their prayer. He was so pleased with the integrity of their appeal to him. He didn't wait a year to honor their request. He didn't wait a month to give them what they asked for. He didn't wait a week to see if they were serious. He didn't wait an hour to see if they really meant it. He gave it to them immediately. Re-Pentecost. A second blessing. A new infilling of the Spirit. A repeat performance from a Lord who intended that his people would experience that again and again and again. They had prayed for boldness to speak his word, and that's what he gave them. It wasn't the boldness of belligerence. No. We've had a lot of that. It wasn't the boldness of brazenness. We have seen too much of that. It wasn't the boldness of militant Christians with their in-your-face agenda. We have all had our share of that. He gave them the holy boldness of those who always seek his face. I want to be part of a powerful church today, my friends, but I don't care one whit if we never march on a capital city. I want to be part of a powerful church today, but I don't care if we never perfect human government. I want to be part of a powerful church, but I am not at all persuaded that that means revving up the newsletters and the legislative agendas and the political hotlines. I seek, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit seeks for a powerful church that understands Christians aren't called to build the kingdom through the ballot box. We're not called to build the kingdom through the sword or the legislative edict. The hymn writer said, not with swords, loud clashing nor roll of stirring drums with deeds of love and mercy. The heavenly kingdom comes. We're called to plainly go about our mission through the bold retelling of the story of Jesus wherever he plants us. I want to live. I want my church to live leaning forward toward the second coming. I want my church to live for that day coming soon when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign, how long? Forever and forever and forever. That's the church I want to belong to. A provocative church is a persecuted church, is a prayerful church, is a powerful church. That's the Word of God and the testimony of the Spirit to us here today.